Nobody moved. We'd gotten there a little earlier than expected. It was one of our stops along the way to the Navajo Reservation that summer. And nobody moved. So I decided, having a little bit of extra time, that I would play with the group dynamics and our youth ministry a little bit while also visualizing a conversation I had had with one of our, one of our staff members, Cody, uh, I believe even that day as we traveled to this particular stop. I walked up to the group right into the middle of where they had congregated in a mush pot and were talking about everything. I think we had even already unloaded the trailer at this point, but the key thing is nobody had moved. So I walked into the middle and I just quietly but loud enough that any of them could hear, all of them could hear, if they chose to listen. And I got their attention, but quietly, which meant I had nobody's attention. But I told them exactly what to do. I gave them all of the instructions, and then I quietly walked away, back to the staff member, back to Cody, and stood by the trailer, and we watched for minutes as nobody moved. Finally, after a couple minutes, I decided, well, it's time to actually get moving. So I turned on what we call drill sergeant mode, not angry, certainly not swearing, but loud and direct. And I told them again what to do. Ladies, grab your gear and put it upstairs. Guys, you're downstairs. Nobody change. Nobody get ready for bed. We meet in five minutes. And immediately, everyone moves. Now, I have to remind them, whether it's my track team or my youth group, when I'm loud, it does not necessarily mean that I am mad, hence drill sergeant mode. But nobody moves if with a group of people outside, I just quietly tell them what to do. I have to talk to the old group. Whole group, I'm amazed, by the way, at teachers that can get quieter and catch more of the attention of the class. But for me, I typically have to go to my water polo days when I am loud and direct or at Hume Lake where the whole camp can hear me when I'm playing broom hockey. You see, sometimes we know exactly what we're supposed to do. A good chunk of the group had already been at that church the year before and done exactly the same thing. They knew what we were doing. They shouldn't have needed me to tell them. And instead, after I had walked up to them and told them quietly what to do, one of them had even stated it again and said, I think James just told us it's time to go, while two or more of them started arguing with that individual that I had not actually said that. They hadn't heard my loud voice, but they still knew what to do. They had even heard it again from me and then from a student that was paying attention. I love my students. I'm not trying to bag on them right now. But we as people, it is one of the reasons God calls us sheep, by the way. We sometimes know exactly what we're supposed to do, but we still aren't doing it. So sometimes something needs to get us moving. And that's exactly where we find the church in Acts 8. Acts 8, verse 1, 3, and 4. You can read 2 on your own at some point. It says this, And Saul approved of his, it's Stephen's from the chapter before, of his execution. Remember, Saul hasn't had his conversion yet. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This was persecution. It's a bad and evil thing. And the church faces it throughout time and history around the globe. It's not good. It's bad. It hurts. We don't enjoy it. And it's not what should be happening. But this was also the moment that the church finally got into gear as witnesses. That reference to Judea and Samaria is calling us back to Acts 1.8 when Jesus tells us to go be witnesses. Throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, go be witnesses. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus tells us to go make disciples. Our purpose statement here, go make disciple-making disciples. It finds its biblical root in that verse and others. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, a now converted Saul tells the church to go be ambassadors. That was our call to worship passage. But the church had not actually gone up to this point in Acts. They had stayed primarily in Jerusalem. We can understand that that's what we do. That's what my group was doing that particular moment. They were huddling together. They were doing amazing things, having great conversations relating exactly what I want as a youth pastor, that they'd be connecting with each other as part of the trip. But it wasn't what they should have been doing at the time. And we see that happening a little bit with that church in Acts, Acts 1 through 7. It was doing some amazing things, and it was growing, flourishing. Churches and church planners would love to have the fast numerical growth of the early church. I say that, and actually they would struggle with it at the same time. It almost is too fast right away, and yet God always knows what he's doing with our numbers, whether it's up or down. They were doing incredible things. We see that in the end of, at the end of Acts 2 and Acts 4 when it talks about the amazing things the church is doing. But it wasn't going. It was growing, but it wasn't going in the way that Acts 1.8 was talking about until these verses when it is scattered. And that is when the amazing things that were happening in the church multiplied across the globe. Acts 8, 26, I might read all the way to 40, I might pause pause, partway through. If I don't finish to 40, read that on your own at some point too. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that, that he was reading was this, like a sheep, 
He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What we see there is the prompting of the Spirit. We have the amazing Ethiopian eunuch. He's not named. And we have the good shepherd in Isaiah, the gospel in Isaiah. John 10, a glimpse of it in Isaiah. What we have there is God has already drawn the Ethiopian to the right spot. We sometimes forget that God in his sovereignty can direct people wherever he wants them to end up being, that they'd encounter the gospel. But that's what we have in Acts 8. Then Philip is told to go, and he does. He's not sitting in Jerusalem. He's out, and he's directed to go have a conversation. And so they started talking about God and faith and scripture, and it leads to the gospel. God has prompted all of this. The Ethiopian is getting directed to all of this, and Philip responds, and they have a conversation they've just met, and it leads to the gospel. Have you ever had that happen? God directing you to something or to speak to someone, and you know it's God? It doesn't necessarily need to be audible, In fact, most of the time it won't be. Some people would even argue it never is, at least outside of Scripture. But you know it's not your brain, but God is directing you in that moment, prompting you in that moment. It's the Spirit living inside you if you're a Christian. And in that moment you obey that direction rather than dismissing it. You don't decide it's not the Spirit, or you don't become too afraid to act upon it, you simply step out in faith. I'm convinced that's God telling me to do something, and I will do it. And then we'll see what happens. And quite often, what happens is amazing. Have you ever been part of a conversation that steered towards God and Scripture and not just conventional wisdom? You've had the blessing of talking to somebody, and maybe they've flat out asked. I've had that happen before. I think we're talking about sports, and then out of nowhere, there's a conversation that takes it right to Scripture. Or you're with your family at Thanksgiving, and you think you're going to get frustrated talking about politics, and they're thinking that you're going to get frustrated about politics, and instead, it takes a beautiful turn. And you start talking about God and faith and Scripture and theology. And that doesn't mean you necessarily agree with each other, but it goes to a whole different level than just sitting in front of the TV and enjoying the Detroit Lions game on, on Thanksgiving Thursday. And don't get me wrong, as a Detroit Lions fan, I love that game. But those conversations are even better. Maybe you've even had the blessing of clearly presenting the gospel, and perhaps even that person coming to faith in that moment, responding in repentance. But even those conversations don't always lead to that repentance like it does here. But you're getting to share the gospel. 
And you know that God is directing that moment. God does this all the time if we're paying attention. If we're committed as ambassadors, if we are going as witnesses, if we are looking to make disciple-making disciples, God steers us into those conversations all of the time. Not every conversation, but all of the time. We'll find ourselves in a cool moment where we realize we're an ambassador and a witness. We have that opportunity and we take it. I don't mean it always works. It certainly doesn't always go the way we want it to, but it always goes the way God wants it to. Speaking of which, did you just see God steer the gospel to Africa? Acts 8, the gospel's heading to Africa out of Israel. The gospel went to Africa immediately. Far from being a Western religion, Christianity is Middle Eastern and African and Asian and Latin America. American. Christianity is global and it has been from the beginning. It isn't just Western or American. So don't ever forget, no matter how much the church in a moment may be failing or faltering, that the bride of Christ still shines throughout the world and throughout history. And we'd be wise to listen to our brothers and sisters around the globe and what they have to say about following God and about faith. And about our faith and church. Because it has never been only a Western thing. In fact, it went way past the Middle East very quickly. And before it ever got to Rome. The gospel went to Africa immediately. And this is that moment. Back to Acts 8 verse 36 and 40. Because there's at least three more amazing things that happened. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through... He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. First, because they're passing a body of water, the Ethiopian has to be baptized. He knows and is familiar with baptism. He was reading Isaiah, so he knows a little bit. He's come to faith, and he's so excited. He wants to celebrate the spiritual realities that have just taken place. And so he says, hey, Philip, how about it? Why not now? He's saved So he wants to declare his identity in Christ publicly in a memorable way for him and to celebrate faith. We're going, as I mentioned, to celebrate baptism in just a little bit, uh, the 1030 service out in the parking lot. These students are declaring that they have put their faith in Christ, that they are dead to sin, buried with Christ, raised through him to new life because he paid the price for their sins. And as we Remember that and celebrate that in baptism as we bury them under the water and raise them back out to righteousness and holiness, life in Christ. That is what Philip and the Ethiopian were doing. Cleansed from sin. Both communion and baptism, by the way, connect all five senses to the spiritual and theological truths that they celebrate. The spiritual and theological truths of our faith. 
All five senses. I love pointing that out to our students. God gave us symbols, ordinances to remember those things that connect our entire being to them. And of course, there are spiritual things taking place too. Amazing celebration. And the Ethiopian wants to be baptized. The early church actually did that at first in Acts, did that right away all the time. The early church also put a pause in there to make sure that people understood that. That's a fun discussion some other time if you ever want to have it with people. But we see in Acts 8, Philip and the Ethiopian go, there's water. Let's go get you baptized. And then he heads on his way, the, the eunuch, which is he's going back to Africa. He's going back to Ethiopia. And the gospel goes with him. Second, in what I think is a supernatural sci-fi kind of moment, you can disagree with me on that if you want to, Philip is carried away. It's about 20 miles. And scripture beautifully does not define what carried away means. But I think it has a sci-fi impact to it. I got, excuse me, I think God moved him. I don't think he walked away. He didn't catch a bus. He just got moved. One minute, he's in the water, baptizes the Ethiopian, they come back up, and then he's gone. And the Ethiopian doesn't see him. That's part of why I think it's kind of a sci-fi moment. It's not magical, but it is supernatural. God regularly directs us to those witnessing moments, by the way. And you can hold out hope for one of those amazing supernatural moments, but that is not typically how God works. You may lead many people to faith and baptize people. But I don't expect after the baptism today to just end up at a different part of the world. That'd be cool. It would have some impacts for, or an impact on the schedule for the rest of the day. But it's not typically what he does. So please don't ever be discouraged if that latter part never happens to you. If you see the supernatural but not that miraculous intervention that way, do not be discouraged. That is not the norm. The spirit moving is the norm. And we get to celebrate that supernatural moment every day. But that miraculous sci-fi moment, not so much. And then third, not only has the gospel gone with the Ethiopian to Ethiopia, it goes with Philip to Caesarea. It's already made it earlier in chapter 8, I think it's verse 14. It's already made it to Samaria, and now it's going to Caesarea Maritimus. That's the primary port of world connection in Israel at the time. What's going on a little bit in Acts 8 is it grabs Acts 1-8, and through that persecution and scattering, God redeems it, and he checks off each part of Acts 1-8 in a little way. Jerusalem, they're already there. Judea, Samaria, we see that checked off. And then to the end of the world times two. The Ethiopian takes it with him and Philip goes to Caesarea Maritimus and amazing things happen in scripture in Caesarea. They're not always easy, but they're incredible. And the gospel is getting on boats and going with people across the world. And then ultimately, by the end of Acts, when it hits Rome, Acts 1-8 is playing out. It's beautiful and it's amazing. See, we're called to be witnesses. 
to Christ. We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be disciple-making disciples. And it seems obvious, but that means we have to go. And for some of us, it means we're going to go to other parts of the world. But for most of us, it just means you're going to go to your house and you're going to go to work and you're going to go talk to your neighbor and you're going to go to the store. And someday we may even be able to go back to movie theaters and malls and restaurants and be inside. And we're going to talk to people along the way. And like Philip, we need to respond to the Spirit when the Spirit says, go. And the reality is we should already be going. And the Spirit says, you all, you're going, and this is why. Go talk to that person. Or that person asks us a question. Those of you that are concerned, well, what will I say? Philip didn't have to be concerned. The Ethiopian literally asked him a question. I don't understand. Well, I guess he asked the Ethiopian a question, but he said, no, how am I going to understand unless somebody explains it? And Philip goes, I can tell you. And they have a conversation, and it leads to him coming to Christ and then being baptized. We're called to be witnesses, ambassadors, and disciple-making disciples, but we have to go. And whether we face persecution and scattering, or in our case, lockdowns and sheltering, the church thrives in the darkest of times. This should not discourage us right now. Even though we long to be back together and life is normal, and that's not bad. We should enjoy parking lot services and our neighbors having to hear the worship songs and the sermon and the gospel because our country has said we can't come inside. That's not suffering that squashes the gospel. It's a scattering that makes the church thrive. So we need to embrace it when we face that. And enjoy it and look for how the Spirit will tap us on the shoulder and say, go. Or as you're going, here's the moment. And as a youth pastor, I've probably spent well, as much, if not more, in that parking lot between youth group and Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. Certainly than I ever expected, but maybe as much as anybody or more than anybody. And it's so cool to see the joggers walk by and know that for 10 seconds... They caught that line of a worship song. And it's so cool to know that while we don't want to annoy our neighbors, if any of you are tuning in and we don't know, we're trying to respect even the noise levels around here, but we do want you to hear the gospel because you need Jesus just like we need Jesus. And that's a going moment. And so is when you go to your office because you're able to go back into it. Or someday when we go back on campuses at schools for our students. Or in the meantime, Zoom calls, when it's appropriate, not during the lesson, but before or after, or texting a friend. And they ask us a question. Hey, how would you handle this? I'm so tired of my parents telling me what to do. And you tell them, well, Jesus has called me to obey my parents and show them respect. Or parents, I'm so tired of my teenager. I thought they could make a mess before COVID, and I'm learning new levels of a messy house because they never leave. And, and you're talking to another parent, and they say, well, how are you making it? And you say, well, I remember that God is watching over my child. And while I need to parent them, what I really need to do is shepherd their heart toward him and the gospel. 
and grace. And so this moment, I show grace by ignoring it. And this moment, I bring grace to it by calling it out because they need to grow as an individual. It's not okay to have moved your bed as a student into the living room and just set up shop in front of the TV and never leave. And so you challenge them. I don't know what you're facing. That probably was an extreme scenario. But I did hear of somebody that I was listening to on a podcast whose child just without asking moved rooms during COVID because they decided they were going to make a change. I can imagine how that played out in the house. Whether we face persecution and scattering or not, even in lockdown, the gospel and the church are going to flourish because God loves his bride and he has a purpose for his ambassadors. Because when we go about our life as witnesses to grace and ambassadors of reconciliation, God does amazing things through his people, his church. Let's pray. We're mighty and holy, we praise your name. You are so worthy of worship. You're so worthy of our faith and trust. And of course that means our faith in you to forgive and save, but that includes our faith in you to protect the church in the toughest of moments, ones that we didn't expect to to watch over the world when things are shaken in ways we can't even imagine or wouldn't have imagined. And it means we put our faith and trust in you when we're convinced that the spirit in us is telling us, no matter how uncomfortable it might feel or be, to go have a conversation with that person or to direct them to you in this way through these words that bring grace and truth, your grace and truth to the moment that has been brought up in a question they ask or a statement they make. Lord, help us always to go to be witnesses, to be ambassadors, to represent you in every conversation and every moment that we face. Amen.